So how are you doing with this COVID-19 thing? Are you angry? Are you afraid? Are you confused by all the different information about what's going on and what we can even do about it? Are you just, just ready for it to be all over? <laughs> I get it. I have been feeling all of those things and my feelings, they seem to change from day to day. Part of that is because this is a big deal, it's confusing, but I think part of it is because you and I and the culture that we live in, we're just not that good at dealing with suffering. Hey friends, I'm Mark Alanshelski, and this is The Apprenticeship Way, a podcast about spiritual growth following the way of Jesus. This is episode 31, COVID, Suffering, and Jesus. So we're going to talk about COVID-19 today. Particularly, we're gonna talk about suffering and how it makes us feel and how that's connected to our spiritual journey. But before we do that, I wanna acknowledge that a lot of us are just struggling emotionally. I see it everywhere. I see it in my local community, in my church, and in the lives of people that I'm connected to online. There's a lot of big feelings going around. Some of us are reactive in ways we just didn't expect. Uh, angry when we didn't plan on being angry. Grieving, just sad, crying unexpectedly when we didn't, we didn't think we had reason to be. Some of us are taking these feelings out on the people that we love. Well, we're in the middle of a crazy situation. Our feelings are running wild. And so I wanna offer two resources that might be of help to you. Now, if you're a hands-on learner, a self-starter, then I wanna suggest uh, my Untangle workbook. This is a guided journal process that will teach you how to sit with your difficult emotions, not just to make them go away, that's not the goal, but to notice them, understand where they're coming from, what might be behind them, and what you can do to process them, respond in an appropriate way, and move on. Now, the first 30 pages of the notebook will uh, teach you the basics of how emotions work in our brains and our bodies so that you understand this is what's happening inside of you when you're feeling anxious or afraid. And then the rest of the workbook is a template that will walk you through a process of noticing your emotion, identifying what might be behind it so that you can respond in helpful healing ways. And then that template is repeated 10 times so that you can practice it with a number of different situations. Maybe you have a fight with your significant other and it got really out of control. It blew up beyond what it should have. Well, you can take that and walk through it step by step to understand what happened, why you felt the way you felt, and how you can respond. And then as you practice those skills, you'll become more able to do it in the moment. Therapists locally here in Portland and even around the country are using this workbook with their clients and they're finding it really helpful. So learn more about it or pick up a copy at the link on the screen or in the show notes, www.markallenshelsky.com forward slash untangled workbook. Now, if you're a visual or auditory learner, then a workbook might not work for you, but I've got a different, a different way to get at the same kind of understanding. 
About a year ago, I collaborated with a good friend of mine, Byron Kaler, who's a trauma therapist, and we created the Untangled Heart Workshop. It's a one-day live training focused on helping people understand and navigate their emotions. Now, we're not doing live trainings uh, these days, as you understand. You know, a lot of us are spending time on Zoom and things like that. Well, we took the live training that we created and we've put it online. You can do it at home while you're quarantined uh, according to your own schedule on your own device. It's five hours of video training. It's guided journal questions that will help you process the material, a 23-page downloadable note packet that will lead you through the whole thing. You can do it all at your pace. You'll have access to it as long as the internet is there, and it will help you understand what's going on in your mind, in your brain and body when you feel emotions, and understanding where that stuff's coming from, why it's getting amplified, and what you can do do about it to have more responsive, mature, healthy uh, reactions to what you're feeling. So if you want to learn more about that or check it out, you can at the link on the screen or in the show notes, www.untangledcourse.com. All right, let's get to why we're here. As I listen to people talk online and in newscasts about COVID-19 and the pandemic, one word comes up over and over again, unexpected. The pandemic is unexpected, and all the consequences we're seeing around us are unexpected, and the government's response is unexpected. I think that's the wrong word. This should not have been unexpected. We live in a world where we can travel halfway around the globe in hours. We're connected via technology in ways that the human species has never experienced before. Most of our consumer goods here in America come from countries all around the world. And we don't like delayed gratification, and so we're not willing to wait. We're not willing to use some basic common sense safety practices. Now, COVID-19 is a direct result of the way that we have structured our lives and our world. We should have expected it. And honestly, I think we should expect more pandemics like this in the future. I think this is a natural consequence of the way we're choosing to live. But there have been a few aspects of this pandemic that have really been unexpected, at least to me personally. Some of them have been kind of shocking. One of those is how taking reasonable safety measures has suddenly become controversial. People are angry, like throwing temper tantrum fits at stores for requiring masks of customers. People are angry for being told to not go to their favorite beach town or mountain getaway. Uh, even more strange to me, this has become a polarizing issue for churches, and I did not see that coming. As different states are sorting through their process for releasing restrictions and opening things back up, there are pastors and, and church leaders declaring that if churches don't get back to meeting in person in their building, it's showing a lack of faith, it's showing an abandonment of our core mission as followers of Jesus. And then other pastors are saying that if we go back to meeting in person too soon, it's a violation of Jesus' command to love our neighbors. I happen to be closer to that end of the spectrum. I don't want to be responsible for any one member of my congregation getting sick and passing that on to other vulnerable people. It's scary. But then in addition to this polarization, there's this whole other layer on top of it. The decisions that we're making about what precautions to take, which should objectively be about health, are turning out to be about something else. 
those decisions are becoming political. Even something as simple as wearing a mask, which is an objective means to limit the spread of droplets, right? That is what masks do. They limit the spread of droplets. That's why medical professionals wear masks when they're doing surgery on you. So the droplets from their breath don't get into your body transferring a sickness. So something as obvious and simple as this has become an identity marker. Like if you're wearing a mask or if you're not wearing a mask, it's it's starting to be seen as a signal of which team you're on, even who you're voting for. That's completely absurd. Now, I want to stop the train right here and acknowledge this is complex stuff. How we respond to the pandemic is not a simple question. And on one end, we're weighing how to limit the spread and protect the vulnerable. On the other end, we're considering how to do this in a way that doesn't wreak financial devastation that ruins families and small businesses and local economies. And balancing those things is really complicated, and it can feel overwhelming to try and sort through all the data. There's so much coming at us, and many of us just aren't, aren't experts in these things. And then on top of that, this is all happening so fast that we're learning new things every week, which means some of the things that we thought we knew for sure a month ago or two months ago, some of those things are already out of date, but not everyone knows they're out of date. And so we're, we're wrestling with new information. That kind of uncertainty is really emotionally triggering for people. But I think there's another reason why these conversations are so hard for us and, and so uh, divisive and controversial. I think it's because we don't deal well with suffering. Suffering is just a part of life. It is. But most of us live in a culture where suffering has been intentionally pushed to the edges. We don't grieve well. We don't know how to be with people who are grieving. Many of us feel intense discomfort having to be around people who are suffering. And so we've built this whole culture, this whole world where suffering and people who are suffering are pushed out of our view. We don't like the feelings that suffering brings up. A lot of times, suffering feels unfair, and we don't like uh, things that are unfair. A lot of times, suffering happens because of things that are out of our control, and we hate feeling out of control. And so all of this evokes really big, painful emotions in us, anger, sadness, fear, and, and we are not good at dealing with those feelings either. And so when we face suffering, our knee-jerk reaction is to avoid it. We don't want to face it. We'd rather deny that it's real. We'd rather try to explain it away. We'd rather figure out who to blame. And that right there, that is what we're seeing all around us right now on the news, on social media, in personal conversations that we're having, people are in all different phases of denial. People are running in circles trying to explain the whole thing away. You know, this is not nearly as bad as other things. More people die from other things. So it's just a really bad flu. That's a form of denial. People are, are trying to figure out who's at fault here. Was it the lab in China? Is it because of our immune systems? They're trying to blame somebody, something, to understand what's happening. So much energy is being put out to avoid facing the suffering. And Christians, we are not immune to these reactions. We do the exact same stuff. We deny, we explain away, we blame. But then we get to add a whole extra layer on top of that because we have a whole toolbox of spiritual ways to avoid suffering. 
We spiritualize the suffering. We deny that it's that bad. We blame people's lack of faith or we blame sin or we try to explain how it's a part of God's big plan. But what we're doing with all that religious sounding language is the exact same avoidance game, but with spiritual labels. So then our theology becomes one of the tools we use to avoid facing the suffering. How you think about suffering and how you relate to it is deeply shaped by how you think about God. So for example, if our theology says that God blesses good people, and we've been good people, then suffering feels unfair at a cosmic level. It feels like a betrayal, a breach of contract. If our theology is that God is a harsh judge who oversees everyone's behavior, then suffering can look like punishment. Somebody did a bad thing and God's punishing them for it. Our theology then becomes a filter through which we see other people who are suffering. So when we see uh, other people or a group of people that are suffering, our theology tells us, well, that just must be evidence that they're bad people, that they were making bad choices, that they're outside of God's blessing, or that they're experiencing God's punishment. And when we do this, what we're doing is we're leveraging superficial theology to explain away suffering that we don't want to face or deal with. Suffering, it's a fairly frequent theme in both Jewish and Christian scripture. One passage in particular has been helping me as I think about the pandemic and other painful circumstances that I might be facing or that we might be facing. One of the small letters in the very back of the Christian scripture, the New Testament, is this letter that's called First Peter. Now, this letter was written to a community of Jesus followers in the very early years of Christianity, and they were experiencing some kind of distress. We don't know what it was exactly. It might have been persecution. We're not sure. It doesn't say in the text. It might have been cultural isolation. It might have been the result of some circumstance that was out of their control. But we do know from the text that suffering was on the table. Suffering's mentioned 12 times in this short letter. And we know from the language that this community was feeling hard-pressed. They were in pain. They, they weren't sure what to do and how to relate to what they were experiencing. And so in this short letter, suffering is addressed from a number of angles. And today, I want to share two simple perspectives found in this letter that I think are particularly helpful and important for us. As this letter is coming to a close, the author says these words. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Catch that language? Do not be surprised as though something strange were happening. So you and I, we live in a privileged time and space in human history. Right now, for most of us, the kind of people who listen to podcasts, for most of us, frankly, COVID-19 is an inconvenience and an imposition in our plans. And for some people, it's worse than that. And for a few people, it has been devastating. I'm not minimizing what's happening. I'm just acknowledging that for many of us, it's mostly an inconvenience and imposition. And we don't know what's going to happen next. You know, things might taper off. And as we get into the fall, we'll find that we're already past the worst of it. Or there may be a second wave that completely destabilizes our lives again. We have no idea. And yet objectively, for a large number of us, this is mostly a costly inconvenience. 
So part of why this feels like such an intrusion into our lives is that for many of us, we live with an unconscious perspective that we've been raised into here in mainstream America. And that frame of reference, that perspective is that progress and prosperity is the norm. Many of us and our parents and some of us, our grandparents, have lived on this trajectory of improving quality of life. We kind of expect, you know, our grandparents worked hard so that our parents could go to college and have a better life, who worked hard so that their kids can go to college and have a better life, and we have this story that life is getting better. That's not true for everyone. It's certainly not true for folks in the margins, but for many of us, and the us here specifically means mostly middle-class white Americans, we have this story. And so when our experience deviates from that frame, when life stops feeling like an upward trajectory of progress and prosperity, we get frustrated. Some of us who have been told that that's the way life works start to feel unfairly treated, like we're not getting our fair share. Some of us start to feel violated, and so then we get angry. Others of us get anxious. But this scripture I shared with you, it suggests a different starting place. Don't be surprised by suffering. Another way of saying that is, suffering is normal. See, historically, suffering has been the baseline standard for humanity. And times of prosperity and progress have been the precious exception. We're used to the opposite, do you see? And so feeling out of control, feeling worried, is the result of not having what we expect. The idea that something out of our control might take away our income or our health or our opportunities, that feels deeply unfair and offensive to some of us. And then for Christians, the same thing is true, right? Historically for Christians, poverty and marginalization has been the standard. Most Christians across history have lived on the edges. The idea that Christians would have cultural power and relevance and, and be the people with the, the big voices influencing culture, that has been the exception for much of human history. But for many of us, we've experienced just the opposite. I, I grew up in a world in the Midwest, in the United States, as a white, middle-class, educated teenager, where Christianity was a powerful and respected voice. There were churches all over town. The, the town council prayed the Lord's Prayer before conducting political business. School activities took into consideration church schedules. I'm just used to living in that world where everybody respects and listens to Christians. And so the idea that my faith might make me marginalized it feels unfair and offensive. See, if you start from the position that suffering is the exception to normal life, then suffering is even more painful. Because now you have to explain why it's happening to you. Are you not good enough? Did you not try hard enough? Did you fail? Did you sin? Did you not believe the right things with the right intensity? If suffering is the exception, then you have to come up with stories to explain why God isn't preventing it this time around. So this passage of scripture, it suggests starting in a different place. If suffering is normal, then it shouldn't surprise us when it happens. It's still painful. We still don't like it. But it doesn't need to reflect on our faith or on our sense of God's presence. I mean, think of it like this. If comfort, progress, and prosperity is how you measure God's presence and blessing, then the cold hard truth is that God has never been present or blessing for most of humanity, for most of human history. Do you believe that? 
I don't think this is how we ought to think about God's presence. God is not endorphins. God is not a full bank account. God is not groceries. But if we believe that suffering is an exception to life, we can start to act like we believe these things about God. That God is only present when our life is going well. So instead, the scripture suggests, we start with the idea that suffering is normal. It is to be expected. It shouldn't surprise us. And if we start there, then our spiritual life shifts. Instead of investing spiritual and emotional energy, trying to get out of the suffering, or deny the suffering, or explain the suffering away, we can instead turn our attention toward the suffering. And there, in the suffering, we find God. See, that's the second perspective from this scripture. The very next verse says this really weird thing. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's suffering, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. Wait, rejoice in suffering? Why? How? Suffering is bad. Why should we be glad about it? That doesn't even make sense, does it? Well, notice the middle part of that verse. Rejoice as you are sharing Christ's suffering. It's not saying rejoice because bad things are happening, or rejoice because you're feeling awful, rejoice because suffering's happening to you. It's not saying that. It's saying rejoice as you share Christ's suffering. See, much of modern Western Christianity has this perception that blessing is evidence of God's presence. And so we look around the world and we think, ah, big dynamic churches where a lot of cool programs are happening, that is the Holy Spirit at work. Getting a raise, that must be a sign of God's blessing. I must be doing the right things. Getting that house that I've always wanted to have, that's God blessing my family. We look at those positive indicators and we think of them as a sign of God's presence. Now, quick side note on this, uh, this view I'm discussing, it is in the Bible. The book of Deuteronomy and the book of Proverbs in particular really show this perspective, this idea that God blesses good people and punishes bad people, and the consequences are tangible in this life. They can be seen by, by people in this life. But this is not the only view found in the Bible. The, the book of Job, the book of Lamentations, the book of Ecclesiastes, and, and a lot of the New Testament come from a completely different place talking about suffering, where suffering is not connected to your behavior. It's just something that happens. If it seems weird to you that the Bible can contain multiple theological perspectives, and I can point you to some great commentaries and resources to help you sort that through. Anyway, back on track. Like I said, some of us see success and comfort as evidence of God's blessing. But the early church, the followers of Jesus from the first century through the middle of the third century and even, and even into the fourth century, did not share that perspective. In fact, when we look at the writings of Christians from this time period, they largely believed that suffering was precisely where God could most easily be found. That sort of echoes Jesus' words in Matthew 25, doesn't it? If you want to find Jesus, what do you do? Look to the hungry, the naked, those in prison, the sick. And what did Jesus say? If you are serving those people, you are literally serving him? Well, the early church took that very seriously. And they believed that when you entered into suffering, 
you were able to find and experience Jesus there. Now, this perspective has really been lost in a lot of Protestant theology, and it doesn't sit well with our modern American evangelical ideas, but the author of this little letter, 1 Peter, suggests that when we suffer, we can look at it differently. We can see it as participating with Jesus in Jesus' suffering. The text that I read, it said this phrase, you are sharing in Christ's suffering. Sharing, the Greek word that's translated there as sharing is koinonia. So if you were a Christian in the 70s, you might be familiar with that word. It showed up a lot then. <laughs> koinonia means fellowship with someone in a shared experience. It means solidarity and partnership. It means shared participation. So, uh, for example, if you go to Disneyland when the pandemic is over, and I know a lot of people are looking forward to doing that sort of thing, and I went to Disneyland a few years back, then after your trip, we can trade stories. We can talk about what we experienced and what it felt like. That's a kind of connection, right? We're sharing a shared experience, talking about our memories, but that's not koinonia. Koinonia is you and I going to Disneyland together, experiencing it together. And this text suggests that not only is suffering normal, it's saying that when we suffer, we can experience koinonia with Jesus in his suffering. Jesus suffered. The early church really leaned into Isaiah's description of the Messiah as a man of sorrows and applied that label to Jesus, the man of sorrows. They talked about Jesus suffering just in the incarnation, right? God going from an ultimate state of power to just being a guy who has to walk around and sleep and eat breakfast. That's a kind of suffering. It's a loss. And then, of course, there was all the tangible suffering in Jesus' human life, being misunderstood by his family, being attacked in his own community, being betrayed by his friends, being unfairly accused, having the legal system marshaled against him in unfair means, maligned by the powerful, and of course, in the Passion Week, being tortured and then killed. So those early Christians in the first three and a half centuries of Christianity, they believed that in Jesus' experience of suffering could be found all of humanity's suffering. And in the same way, when we suffer, we can find Jesus in it with us. So we're not alone. We're seen, we're understood. But even more than that, when we suffer, we are in fellowship with him in his suffering. And this belief led Christians through those difficult centuries to see suffering as a very sacred place where we find ourselves closer to God. I want to invite you to think about the power of these two perspectives. See, if our perspective is that only comfort, blessing, and prosperity indicate God's blessing, then suffering makes us question God's presence. Is God with us? Is God blessing us? And also, very naturally, it means that we will judge other people that we see who are suffering. But if our frame, our perspective, is that our suffering is a part of Jesus' suffering, and it's only natural that when we suffer, we'll start looking for God's presence. How is God in this with me? And it's also only natural that when we see other people suffering, we will see them with more compassion. 
Now, these two texts of Scripture, they don't solve the problem of suffering. They don't explain why they're suffering. They don't tell us why bad things happen to good people. They certainly don't tell us that God causes suffering. This is simply a perspective that enables us to see our suffering differently. I won't tell you that this is how you have to deal with suffering. I won't tell you that if you're feeling sad or scared or worried or angry that you're doing your suffering wrong. I mean, we each have to go through suffering in the way that we can. I won't tell you that you need to lay all your suffering at Jesus' feet and the discomfort will just go away. I will just pose a possible way to frame how you see the suffering you're experiencing. Suffering's normal. It is to be expected. When it happens, we can choose to deny it or explain it away or look for who to blame, or we can look into its face, we can feel it, we can identify with it, we can see others who are suffering as real people, worthy people, people we can hold with compassion, and even begin to see the presence of the crucified one walking with us in the middle of our suffering, and us walking with him. May you feel courage in the face of the enormous task of being present to our suffering. May you enter into the suffering instead of running away, denying, explaining it away, justifying it. And may you find Jesus there. Thanks for listening. You'll find the show notes for today's episode, including any links and scriptures that I mentioned at www.markellenshelsky.com forward slash TAW031. If you're not on my email list, I would love to see you there. That is the best way to find out when there's something new from me. I email once or twice a month at most. Uh, it will usually include a new blog post, links to other things I found online that might be a benefit to your spiritual journey. And of course, if there's a new podcast episode, you'll hear about it there. And it would be a huge gift to me if you would do all those helpful podcast things. Subscribe to the podcast in your podcast app, whether you use Apple Podcast app or Stitcher or Overcast or Spotify. You can subscribe in any of those places. If you prefer the video, want to see my face, subscribe on the YouTube channel and click the little bell so that you'll be notified when a new episode comes out. Rate and review the podcast so that others can learn about it. That helps other people decide if this podcast is for them. But most importantly, this is the big one, Share this episode with someone you think would benefit. That's how podcasts grow. And more importantly, it's how this podcast can be of help to people. That is my desire. Do you know people that are struggling with the pandemic and the suffering and uncertainty? Maybe listening to this episode will help them. Send them a link, let them hear it, talk to them about it, see what happens. Until next time, remember, in this one present moment, even in the middle of a pandemic, you are loved. You are known, and you are not alone.